The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. You have your Bibles. Uh, open them up. They should fall open to 1 Peter at this point. 1 Peter chapter 3, as we're going to look together at verses 13 through 17. So we've been in a, a section of this letter where, where Peter is instructing us on how to live in such a way that a lost world would see uh, in us uh, a difference that would, by the grace of God, lead them to the grace of God through our life, there is a, a shift this morning somewhat in Peter's focus as he turns his attention now to the issue of suffering. Now, he will speak on suffering in this text and how we as believers can suffer in such a way that the world would take notice. Um, and so it's, it is a continuation of, of where we've been, but it's, it's also beginning a, a shift in, in Peter's focus. As we've studied this letter so far together over the, the last um, number of, of months, there have been um, some mentions from the Apostle Peter about suffering throughout. We saw it early on in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in, or in verse 6, where he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We see it again in 1 Peter 2, 12, which we've looked at regularly now as, as one of the main verses in the section that we've just come out of. Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This suffering that these brothers and sisters were um, enduring at the hands of, of evildoers, people who were, who were speaking and, and doing evil things against them. Again, in verse 19 of chapter 2, Peter says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In chapter 3, verse 9, as we saw last week, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. See the, the, the underlying you know, uh, theme there in that, that text is, is that there, there is evil done upon these brothers and sisters and their call is to not return to evil. There is reviling um, heaped upon them to not revile in return. But Peter has yet in this, this letter to address, as a main point anyway, how we are to respond to suffering, especially suffering for righteousness' sake. A suffering for righteousness' sake is a, a persecution. And I, I feel like it's important to early on to, to make this distinction. There are a, a few different forms of, of suffering that one could endure. The one that Peter discusses here is a suffering for righteousness' sake or a suffering on behalf of Christ or a, a suffering in your choice to honor God in your life and how that might bring about um, suffering on you. There's also suffering that we um, undertake that just comes from our dumb decisions. And so we can make dumb decisions, we can make bad choices, and from those decisions come a, a level of, of suffering. And um, most often that suffering is, is the... the disciplining hand of God upon our lives in an attempt to, to bring us back to righteousness. And then there is also suffering that can take place that is just part of life. That's a part of being in a fallen world. Um, suffering in the form of, of sickness in particular is, is one that may not be because of your decisions may not be because of an, an 
overtly Christian life, but it's just a part of uh, the fallen world that we live in. Um, suffering is, is a part of our, our daily existence. Uh, the scripture is clear that suffering in one form or another will be a part of the Christian life. Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is specifically a suffering that comes for righteousness' sake. That if you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have determined to live your life in a way that honors God, in a way that is, is in this world but is not of this world, then you will, at some point and on some level, if you are the real thing in Jesus Christ, you will suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, there are today brothers and sisters who are suffering in immense ways throughout the world. According to Open Doors, in the year 2018... There were over 245 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. 245 million Christians. With the, the population of the, is the, of the U.S. is just north of 300 million. So this is nearly the entire population of, of the U.S., who are, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are living in areas of the world where they experience high levels of, of persecution. In 2018, 4,305 Christians were killed because of their faith. 1,847 churches and other church buildings were attacked. And 3,150 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And that's just the numbers we know of. That's just the numbers we know of. Today, throughout the world, there are believers who are just like us, who desire to honor God with their lives, who've been called by him, who've been saved by his grace, who because they claim the name Jesus Christ are in great danger and great peril. There are brothers and sisters around the world who would give anything to be able to do what we are doing as we gather together with other brothers and sisters and sing praises to God together and look into God's word together and pray for one another and encourage one another and enjoy company of, of one another. There are, are brothers and sisters who today do that at great risk. Now, this was the case for these that Peter's writing this letter to. They were in the beginning stages of enduring the greatest persecution ever known in the Christian church. And there are those today who are living in those same circumstances. But this is not our reality here. And praise God, it's not our reality here. We can join together as believers without the threat of, of bodily harm because we claim the name Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the reality is, is that there should be a level of persecution that you endure because you claim the name Jesus Christ. There should be some level. It may not be imprisonment, it may not be uh, your death, it may not be separation of your family or the confiscation of your um, resources, but there should be a level of persecution because you want to honor God with your life. This is the, this is the, the clear teaching of the scriptures. All who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. Now, that may take the form of being left out of some things. 
right, because we claim Jesus Christ, because we desire to honor him with our lives, then there may be times and points in our life where we're left out of things, where our friends may do things and not invite us or not engage with us, or we may be left out of things because they know we're believers and we don't necessarily see eye to eye with them. We may be passed over for things because you claim to be a Christian, because you claim the name of Jesus. It could be a job or it could be a position that you are passed over because you are a Christian. You may be looked at differently than those who are in your sorority or those who are in your fraternity or those who, are, who work with you or those who teach with you. You may be looked at differently and treated a little differently because you claim the name of Jesus Christ. There are those who, in one way or another, may lose their job because of their stance to honor Christ with their lives. Our persecution does not, by the grace of God, look like the persecution that these brothers and sisters were enduring in, in um, this letter in the first century. And it may not look like the, the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Syria or in China are enduring, but there should be a level of suffering for Christ's sake that is present in our lives. These aren't classic understandings of persecution but they are our reality, or at, less, at least they should be. But these who are receiving this letter, as I've said, would come to no horrible suffering and persecution because of their faith. And Peter is instructing them on what they should do and what this kind of, of Christian life looks like. And in these Verses today, we're going to see five things from this, this text. That a person's life, while suffering for righteousness' sake, should be these five things. Here they are. I'll give them to you early, so if you're a note taker, you can have them. Know that they're coming. First, our life should be protected by goodness protected by goodness. Second, persecuted but blessed. Third, privately settled. Fourth, prepared to share. And fifth, personally pure. Protected by goodness, persecuted but blessed, privately settled, prepared to share, and personally pure. Peter writes, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter begins with a rhetorical question in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And this is where I get that, that our lives are and should be protected by goodness. By goodness. See, the implication here is that if you are zealous for what is good, there is no one that can harm you. That's what Peter's saying here. This is a rhetorical question, one that where the, the answer is implied, the answer is understood, 
And the answer is no one. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? There is no one. There is no one. There is a kind of character that protects you from harm. And it is one that loves, desires, and pursues that which is good. There is a kind of character that your life can be marked by that will protect you from harm. And Peter says it is a kind of character that is zealous for good, a life that loves the good things of God, that desires good things, that pursues good things. If you live with goodness, then you are protected from harm because there is a commendation from God for doing good. And a commendation from God supersedes any condemnation from the world. That's the implication here. That if we are zealous for what is good, and this zealousness is one that leads to action. You're not a a zealot if you just really like something, but it doesn't affect the way that you you live. That's a hypocrite. That's not a, a zealot. But if you are so desirous of something, that it affects your entire life, then you are a zealot for those things. You are zealous for those things. And Peter says, if you are zealous for what is good, then who is there that can harm you? There is a protection from God for those who seek after him. To seek after goodness is to seek after God because God is good. This is Matthew 10, starting in verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Here's what what Jesus is saying is, if your life is marked by a holy reverence, fear of God, this is a life that's zealous for good, then you have no fear over those who kill the body because you are protected by the one who is greater than them. That there is a protection that comes for those who seek after God. There is eternal protection, which I think is the main point. There is eternal protection for those who follow God in in goodness. This leads right into Peter's next point. I say it this way. We are to be persecuted but blessed. Peter writes in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, doing good, when I say that there is a protection from goodness... I do not mean that doing good is a a guarantee for a life free of suffering. That's not what Peter says here. Just because we live a life that desires goodness and desires to honor God and is zealous for those things, just because we live that kind of life, that does not mean that we will live a life free of suffering. But there is a protection from God, an eternal protection from God. But in this life, even though we seek after good, we still may and and will, indeed will, suffer for it, right? This is verse 14. But even if you should suffer, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Well, no one. But even if you should suffer, see, Jesus Christ himself, he went around doing good. Right? I mean, that was his life, a life zealous for, for goodness. I mean, 
Does it get any better than, than someone who, who has such deep and abiding love and care for those who are needy and who are weak and who are sick and who are helpless and who are outcast? And this is, this is who Jesus came to. And he did good work and he did good things, yet he was persecuted to the point of death because of those things. And so it is with us and our desire to, to honor God and to live in, in goodness while we are eternally protected by God. There is suffering that can come our way because of a life of righteousness, but doing good and living a righteous life that honors God, the scriptures tell us, will produce blessing. You will be blessed because of it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. This is a promise from God. If you are zealous for what is good, if you are chasing after, pursuing, loving what is good, what honors God, even if you are persecuted in this life, you will be blessed by God. That is the promise of God for those who seek after him. Now, this blessing is not the blessing of salvation. This is not, if you do enough good works, then you will be saved. <coughs> it is that if you desire goodness and live for righteousness' sake and seek to honor God, then that kind of life produces a blessing from God in this life. James 1.25, but the one who, who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed for his doing. This is someone who comes to the word of God and reads the word of God and looks intently into the word of God, desires to know the word of God. And when he comes away from the word of God, she walks into a life that is informed, that is controlled, that is marked by an obedience to the word of God. This is someone who looks intently into the word of God and walks away and is changed by it. If you live that kind of life, the scriptures make the promise that you will be blessed by God. You will be. You will be. God honors those who honor him, especially those who honor him in suffering. Peter says this in chapter 5 here of 1 Peter in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In and through our suffering for righteousness' sake, God works in us to produce Christ-likeness. And this is the ultimate blessing. There is no greater blessing from God than for him to take the suffering that we endure and to use it to mold us and to shape us more into the image of God, more into the image of, of Christ. See, here's the problem. The problem is, is that this idea of you will be blessed has been hijacked. And we read that and we think financial blessing. We think material blessing. We think physical blessing. But the real blessing comes, the greatest blessing comes as God gives more grace and uses those circumstances and that suffering to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ Jesus. That's the greatest blessing of God. And that's what God does in Suffering, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
This outer self is suffering, but this inward self is being renewed by the grace of God day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're they're like a vapor. They're a mist. They're here. They're gone. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. Those last forever. There is a blessing that comes from God in and through our suffering that will last for eternity as he blesses us with more grace and more Christ-likeness. This is what we mean when we say Genesis 50, 20. At least this is what I hope you mean when you say, and you'll know this verse. It's used extensively. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that, many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, this is, this is what God does. Even though these brothers meant this for evil, God and his sovereignty was working it for good, ultimately to preserve this, this line of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob to bring about Jesus Christ, the ultimate blessing. And we hear it all the time. Hey, they may mean it for evil, but God means it for good. He's going to bring a blessing. And in our hearts, we think, man, we hope, man, I hope that some random weird check comes in the mail, right? That may not be the blessing that God brings. He can do that. But the ultimate blessing, the one that we should desire more than anything is that we're molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest blessing. That is the eternal blessing. That's what heaven is about. That's what heaven is about. And that's what God does. That's what he promises in and through our suffering. If we suffer for righteousness sake, we will be blessed. We will be blessed. Listen to me. Suffering will come. If you are the real thing in Jesus Christ, you will suffer. If you desire goodness, you will be protected, eternally protected by God. They can kill our bodies. They cannot kill our souls. And if we honor him in our suffering, we will be blessed. But to get to that point, number three, we must be privately settled. Privately settled. Settled. Peter says it this way Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 13. <coughs> Do not call conspiracy all that these people that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread but the lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy let him be your fear and let him be your dread now in isaiah 8 the context here matters just to give some clarity and it is the context of an impending invasion by assyria So Assyria is is coming against the people of God. And the king of Judah was a man named Ahaz, and he had a crisis at hand. You had the kingdoms of of Israel and of, of Judah, and you had the king of Israel and Syria that had sought to make an alliance with him against the Assyrian forces. But Ahaz had refused that alliance. It was an ungodly alliance. He'd refused that alliance. And so now Israel and Syria threaten to invade Judah. So now you've got Judah led by King Ahaz who has not just an impending invasion by the Assyrians 
but an impending invasion by both Israel and Syria. So, Ahaz then thinks that he will ally Judah with Assyria to fight Israel and Syria. It's a lot of names, but you hopefully get the point here. Here's the, the point, the main takeaway, is that all of these are ungodly alliances. For Ahaz to be afraid of an impending army and that fear leading him to ungodly alliances is an evidence of a lack of faith and trust and fear of God. And so Isaiah comes to him to warn him, to tell him, you do not fear them, but you trust in the Lord. You trust that the Lord is going to take care of you. You trust that the Lord is faithful to his promises. And though the circumstances may look like ones that you could never prevail from, if God is on your side, then who can be against you? If you are zealous for what is good, who can harm you? Who can harm you? And so Isaiah is calling Ahaz to not fear what they fear. See, Israel's afraid, so they partner with Syria. Israel's afraid, so they want to make ungodly alliances. And so Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, do not fear what they fear. There's no reason for you to be afraid in the same way that they're afraid. Because God is with you and God is faithful. See, this is the point that Peter's making, that we should not fear what the world fears. See, the world is afraid of suffering. The world is afraid of being rejected by the world, of being ostracized. The world is afraid of those things. We, we see this in, in our political candidates for the most part, Right? They can be in a town hall and someone can ask the craziest question that nobody in the world would agree with. But they'll go right along with it because they're afraid of being ostracized. They're afraid of, of being left out. They're afraid of not getting a, a, a vote. The world fears those things. The world fears suffering. The world sets itself up by any means necessary not to suffer. And to go along with anything if it means that suffering won't come to their door. And Peter is standing here to the church saying, do not fear what they fear. The world in their day, they feared the power of Rome. They feared the emperor. Nero was a horrible, terrible man. And the world was afraid of him because he could bring on suffering like the world had never seen. And Peter says, do not fear what they fear. We should not fear those things. We shouldn't fear being rejected by the world. We shouldn't fear standing for Christ if it means suffering for it. We should have no fear of them, nor be troubled, Peter says. This word for troubled here is, is shaken, scared to the point that you're just shaken. It also is, is, a, is a, you know, an unwillingness to stand firm, to be easily shaken, to, to not have convictions that, that undergird your life, but just to be easily swayed and easily moved and, and easily shaken. And Peter writes to say, have no fear of them. Don't fear what they fear. And do not be shaken. But on the contrary, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
You see, these are two diametrically opposed things. A fear and being shaken is the complete opposite of in your hearts establishing Christ as holy. Being afraid and being shaken is the total opposite of setting Christ apart in your hearts. That's what it means when he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This means that in your hearts, you set Christ apart as the main thing. Over and above everything else, you see Christ as the sole object of your love of your reverent loyalty, of your obedience. That's what it means to honor Christ as holy in your hearts. In your inward person, you decide to set Christ apart, to set him above, to set him beyond as the one that you desire, that you love, that you're loyal to, that you're obedient to. Church, this is done inwardly. This is a private matter. Only you can do this. I cannot do this for you. Your mother cannot do this for you. Your grandmother cannot do this for you. You have to do it for yourself. In your heart, in your inward being, where you're the one that knows it, you decide, I'm setting Jesus apart as holy. I'm honoring him in every part of my life. I'm putting him above. I'm putting him first. And I'm honoring him. I'm obeying him. I'm loyal to him beyond everything else. You see, when you set Christ apart as most important, then it becomes increasingly easier to lose everything else. And that's why we're not shaken. That's why we're not afraid. Because when we set Christ apart as preeminent, as first, then it becomes increasingly easier to lose everything else. It doesn't hurt as bad to lose friends. It doesn't hurt as bad to lose positions. It doesn't hurt as bad to lose jobs. It doesn't hurt as bad to lose money. It doesn't hurt as bad to lose comforts. Because Christ supersedes all of those things. And so if we suffer for his sake, it doesn't hurt as bad. Because our deepest desires, our deepest love, our deepest loyalty is to him. So let all of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious face and his glorious Grace To honor him in your hearts as holy means that you're honoring him above everything else. And so if I lose everything else, I've not lost what's most important to me. When you hold most tightly to him, you hold more loosely to the things of this world. So that when suffering comes, you are not shaken because your heart is established by someone that will never fail. That you will never lose. That cannot be taken away. We have to be personally, privately settled in your hearts. You have to determine I'm going to honor God. I'm going to honor Christ as holy. I'm going to set him apart as first. And when we do that, we're not easily shaken. And we have no reason to be afraid. We're privately settled. And then fourthly, we're prepared to share. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right, this is what Peter sees that should happen in our life. And I want you to, you to follow with me here in this, this train of thought that, that Peter's been on with us, okay? First, 
We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've, we've been saved. That's been established, right? He, he got to that really quick in 1 Peter. But now we have set Christ apart as holy. And then we encounter suffering. That follows from us that we do not lose heart and we don't go into to despair. Instead, we, we stand firm with an eternal perspective that leads to an enduring hope. So you're saved. You set Christ apart as holy. You encounter suffering. You don't lose heart. You don't go into despair. But instead, you stand firm with an eternal perspective that leads you to an enduring hope. And then the world asks, where in the world does that come from? See, this is what Peter anticipates is going to happen when we live this way. That suffering comes to us, yet we've established Christ, and suffering comes, and we don't go to despair, but we stand firm, and we look totally different than the rest of the world. Because when suffering visits their door, they fall apart. But when it comes to us, we stand firm. And so they look at us, and they say, where in the world does this kind of hope come from? That's what Peter anticipates will happen. And when this happens, Peter says, we must be prepared to give an answer. He says to make a defense. Now, I want you to look at these two words he says. Always be prepared to make a defense. What does that mean? That means at any time, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So at any time, to any person, we should be prepared, we should be ready to give an answer. Listen, church, if you live this way, some will ask how and why. And the question is, are you ready to give a reason, a clear, logical, compelling answer? Are you ready to give it? Here's just where the rubber meets the road. Are you sharing the gospel? Now, I want you to notice something about this encounter that Peter anticipates happening here. And it's an encounter that I love. And it's an encounter that should happen more often in all of our lives than it does. And if it isn't happening, then we got to ask ourselves, why is it not happening? But this is not just random encounters with strangers for evangelism, is it? This isn't. Hey, I'm Jason. I'm from the church down the street. And I just want to come by and ask you if you're going to hell. You know, that's not this. That's not this. This is not random evangelistic encounters. These are people who see your life and they take notice that you are living as a hopeful person and they simply ask, where in the world does that come from? I mean, you talk about teeing one up. For you to share the gospel, when somebody comes to you and says, could you, give, could you explain to me how you can be going through this, yet you seem to have hope? We must be prepared to give an answer. You see, what this is, is the compelling power of a personal affection for Jesus. If you personally love Jesus and honor Jesus with your life, there is a compelling power that comes out of that that draws people to you to ask you how and why. They see it and they want to know. And are you ready and are you willing to share? Is your living joined with your speaking? Now listen, all of this starts inwardly, right? In your hearts, set Christ apart as holy. This all starts inwardly, but it should never end there. Every single one of us are called to share. Now, I've been a Christian for a while. I have biblical degrees, and I have always thought of this verse, be ready to give a reason for the hope within as like the preeminent verse on knowing apologetics. 
This word, reason, comes from this root word for apologetics. So I have read this, and I have always thought that what this means is that we should be prepared to give an ironclad argument in favor of the resurrection or in favor of creation, right? To be ready to give an answer, to be prepared to give an answer means that no matter what question they may ask, we're ready to give them an answer, right? And that we have to be some well-educated scholar in apologetics. Now, there's nothing wrong with education, We all should desire to be educated. We all should desire to have theological and biblical education. There is absolutely nothing wrong with apologetics. We need apologists and we need apologetics. But please understand, this is not what this is. This is be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. That's in you. The hope that's there. This isn't, you got to be able to, I mean, I'm talking like give some ironclad, indefensible, no way you can argue around it, proofs of the resurrection. That's not this. This is you be ready to tell this person what Jesus has done in you to make you live this way. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have the master's degree. You don't have to be as smart as Jacob to do all this. You just love Jesus and be ready to tell people why you love Jesus. We should be all be able to do that. That's what this is, to be prepared to give a reason for your hope. Anyone should be able to do that. And by the way, to do it with gentleness and respect, right? I love how Peter puts that in there because he knows me. Right? Because he knows that, that, that these, these brothers and sisters who really like apologetics can tend to kind of lean towards being a jerk. But we give a reason for the hope within and we do it with gentleness and respect. We need more of this. I need more of this. I've been convicted of this. That in my preaching, there needs to be more gentleness and respect. I've, I've failed you in a lot of ways because there, ha- there hasn't been that often in my preaching. God's called us to have gentleness and respect and to be winsome and to win people over with our lives and how we speak to, to them in gentleness and respect just as importantly as what we speak to them as we proclaim the gospel. This be prepared to give a reason. This is not an, uh, an excuse for you to be a jerk. And Peter sees that. We need more of this. And then lastly, personally pure. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Simply put, if your conscience is clear, you are not troubled. This is pretty common sense, right? Like if you've been living in a way that honors God and loves God, when bad things happen, you're you're not troubled. See, here's what happens. Let's just be honest. We're a bunch of sinners. And then when suffering comes... We're afraid, we're troubled because we think God's getting us because we've been a bunch of sinners. Right? Is that just me? That's why Peter says, have a good conscience. Have a clean, have a clear conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, that you will not be troubled Because your behavior's been good. When we have good consciences, that's a hard word for me to say. When we live in such a way that sets Christ apart as holy, as we are honoring him, we have a clear conscience so that 
When suffering comes, we're not troubled by the world because we know God is with us. This is the power of personal purity. We honor God with our lives. We obey him. Now, how do we have good, clean consciences? How do we have it? I'm going to give you two ways. One, avoid willing disobedience. Two, be quick to repent. That's it. Avoid willing disobedience. But when you are disobedient, when you do sin, be quick to repent. God is a gracious God and he's a loving God and he does not hold sin against his children. When we turn from sin, when we repent for sin, those sins are forgiven. They are covered. They are removed. God does not hold those against you. So all we have to do to have a clear conscience is to avoid willing disobedience and be quick to repent when we do and then trust in the grace of God. That's it. That's it. Now, we don't have a lot of time and that's okay. But just a last note here that suffering can be the will of God. Do you see it here? For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than doing evil. Suffering can be the will of God. And I can give you theological reasons for that. And I can show you biblical examples of that. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to ask you one question. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Suffering can be the will of God. I don't have to point you anywhere except for verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for suffering for evil. It can be God's will to suffer. And if it is God's will to suffer, guess what? It's good. It's good. And we just got to be okay with that. You have to have that settled. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk. As Peter turns his attention to suffering, how we should live, and we see five things from these verses at least, that a person's life while suffering for righteousness' sake should be protected by goodness, persecuted but blessed, privately settled, prepared to share, and personally pure. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.